0: Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Hello, Scott. Um, uh, I'm really excited about today. Uh, I'm still frustrated that I can't see your face while we're talking. I don't know what... And that'll
1: be the case for a while. It will be,
0: and I don't know what faces you're making at me while I'm talking. Oh, I'm making them. I know. Um, today we're joined uh for our podcast by somebody we've been talking about for some time about having we've been we've been talking about having Daryl Tippins on for some time. Um Cole, do you remember on Seinfeld when um Uncle Leo was talking about his son Jeffrey uh who hangs out with one of his professors? And they're actually <laughs> yes. friends. I yes. I think about that. Uh, I think about Uncle Leo every time I'm in the room with Daryl as a colleague because I was Daryl's student, and I, my friends, uh, that knew me in college joke that I minored in Daryl Tippins when I was a student because <laughs> I took all my elective classes in whatever Daryl was teaching at the time. So Daryl, I'm really glad you're here.
2: <laughs> Thank you. And apparently uh, I'm hoping I didn't do you too much damage, Scott. Uh, <laughs> you're to blame. And to, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> whatever you're doing well today, I will take credit okay, for. There you go. Otherwise there you uh, go. it was not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: so Daryl, uh, uh, tell, what is your, what is your current position or your current role?
2: Well, my current role is um, I am provost emeritus of Pepperdine University. Someone said emeritus means you don't wear a tie anymore. Okay. Uh, and so I don't <laughs> wear a tie anymore. I have been giving away a lot of my ties. Uh, I also, though, uh, have continued to teach uh, at uh, at Abilene Christian University, and uh, I'm not teaching this semester, but I do teach English literature here uh, at ACU, and uh, I have all sorts of projects going on, writing and researching, and hopefully thinking a bit, and gardening, and doing things with
0: my grandkids. Uh, I love it. Um, well, we're really glad you came. Uh, Cole, let's rehearse our three tenets, uh, because um, Daryl has yet to hear them. Our first tenet is Sacred Cows Make Great Barbecue.
1: That's right. Our second tenet is that we let our flag fly proudly, and we argue vigorously for our position.
0: That's right. And third, and most important, bros before
1: politicos. Right.
0: We'll f- we're br- we're brothers first, and we'll figure everything else out later.
1: And one of the reasons that we were so excited to have you on, Daryl, uh, I'll tell our listeners is that. Students who are majoring in English at ACU take a very unique class called um, mm-hmm. Literature and Belief, and that was a course that Daryl himself created out of whole cloth years ago. And it was so meaningful that it's um, it's a requirement for our students. I was in so the Daryl is a. I was in the inaugural
0: yeah? class of that uh, of that course. Wow,
2: well, I didn't remember that. Yes, Scott. I was That's the very that. first time. Yeah, it's been a a fun course for me to teach. I actually created it uh, at Oklahoma Christian University, where I taught previously, and I brought the idea with me to ACU when I came uh, to ACU in 1987 and uh, was given a chance to experiment with uh, special topics, which uh, was possible. And after we experimented, then it did enter the curriculum.
1: So we know that you are accustomed to thinking about your life and how various portions that people might think are secular, that we may label as secular, interact with your parts of your life that you would label as Christian. Right. And that's sort of what our podcast does, right, Scott?
0: It does. Uh, in fact, we Daryl, we asked you to come and help us have some discussion about, well, I guess the larger topic is human rights, uh, maybe the more specific uh question is where do our per- perceptions or conceptualization of human rights come from and and how do we, uh, what do we mean when we talk about human rights? Right. Um, uh, and you you had us read an article by Moyne that I thought was both fascinating, it's in the show notes, we have a link to it in the show notes, but I it was both fascinating and, um, and thought provoking. Insofar as it asks it asks the reader to consider a number of assumptions in the um, in the thesis, the thesis of the of the article is that um, dignity, as a facet of human rights, um, has has uh, largely been informed by the way that uh, Catholic the Catholic understanding of dignity was uh, somewhat imbued within the Irish constitution and was it 1937? Yes. But that brings up a lot of questions about what are human rights? What does it mean when we talk about dignity? What does it mean when we talk about um, uh, when we think about being uh, people who concern ourselves with the needs and and rights of others um, on a human level, as opposed to, you know, there's there's the kind of right to. I have the right to drive a vehicle because I have a driver's license. That not that's not necessarily a human right. That's a. It's a civil
2: permission, really. Uh, it, it, no one has is entitled to drive an automobile. Yeah, that's a good uh, way to put it. it. You're not born with the right. To- uh, you actually have to earn it. It's a privilege to be on the road in a car, and you have to meet certain tests. That's very different from the idea that by virtue of your being a human person, you are endowed with dignity regardless of race, class, religion, ethnicity, uh, national origin, on and on. Um, and that idea that you are uh, a person of infinite worth by virtue of simply being a human being, that notion has not always been a part of the human community. It is a concept that's actually evolved over centuries. And um, today, what we take for granted as uh, human rights or uh, what is often considered the moral basis for human rights is the idea that you're a human being, that you are a person of dignity. What's surprising is that that idea hasn't always been around. Uh, in fact, it's uh, in, in, in the form that we know it today. It's less than a hundred years old. Huh. Now, there are there have been ideas of human dignity uh, around that go way back. You know, back to the Renaissance. You had people uh, like uh, Francis Petrarch and uh, Pico della de Mirandola, uh, who wrote a famous oration on the dignity of man. So, as early as the in the Western world as early as the Renaissance, there were ideas developing of human dignity, but uh, this was not by any means considered universally so. Uh, Think, for example, that cultures around the world have practiced slavery for Mm -hmm. centuries. Mm -hmm. And so even though this person might have had dignity or that person might have had dignity, the idea that every person has dignity and worth, that is a, a relatively late innovation. Now, I buy into it. Sure. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and I uh, I would uh, argue for it and fight for it. But I, I have to understand and, and respect the notion that there's an evolution of understanding around human rights. And it reaches a kind of uh, culminating point, you might say, in the period between World War One and World mm-hmm. War II. Mm-hmm. Um, especially uh, with, after the Holocaust, there was this uh, international, you know, um, sort of recoiling from the horrors of uh, what happened in uh, Nazi Germany. And that's what led uh, the UN to, in 1948, write uh, its a very famous uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is grand language and wonderful language. It's just never been bought into by all cultures, sure, right? <laughs> even though it's called universal.
0: And would you say I understand the thesis of Moyn if I were to understand him arguing that one of the major shifts is away from identifying human rights or dignity to a group right or to a population or to a collective is a different conversation than deciding that each individual person
2: Yes, has. exactly. And, and in fact, if you go back and look at the word dignity and where it comes from in Latin, in Latin, we have certain notions of dignity even to this day that doesn't mean for everyone. For example, if we say uh, the dignitaries will be sitting over here.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah.
2: Or why don't you act more dignified? Right. Originally, dignity didn't mean for everybody. It, was it parsing. meant, <laughs> it meant a, a special class of people. <laughs> who were the upper class, in fact. Interesting. The upper class were the dignitaries. And so, uh, as one of the authors on this point said, uh, in the French Revolution, they didn't say uh, fraternity, égalité, dignité. Dignity wasn't even a part of the French Revolution, even though they were arguing for rights. Right. Uh, And so uh, what happens is, in the 20th century, uh, apparently uh, especially through the encyclicals of Pope Pius XI there's this conversation that begins to develop that whole groups of people they may be the worker cl- the working class for example or they may be the family that the family is a dignified unit uh-huh. or the working class uh, is a dignified class And then it evolves to the individual. Every human person uh, is uh, a dignified person. And as far as constitutional rights, it is the, uh, the Irish Constitution of 1937 that specifically places the language of human dignity into the Constitution saying, by virtue of our being human persons, we are uh, entitled to dignity. And then this sense of dignity leads to rights. So think of dignity as the, as the base, the, the true foundation, this notion of human dignity. And if it's true that you are a dignified human being, then out of that you are entitled to certain privileges and rights, mm-hmm. Right. And, and so the idea is that human rights is uh, an outgrowth of this understanding of
0: the worth, the, in, the inherent worth of the individual. So help us understand a little bit how that argument plays out in reference to, for example, um, I'm thinking specifically the, the, Constitu- the Amer- United States Constitution. Um, I mean, you hear references... In the Declaration of Independence, to the idea of some kind of inalienable rights. Yes. Yeah. um, That may be cast in the public context, as or in in a a collective context. Uh, That's open, I guess, for interpretation and hermeneutic. But that even the Bill of Rights was something that is attached and not necessarily uh, integrated into the Constitution, but attached almost almost in protest. Right, exactly. Under protest.
2: Uh, yeah, the, but you, you will notice that the word dig, dignity does not appear sure. in the uh, Declaration of Independence or in the Constitution, sure. so uh, that language uh, comes later. But you're right, in the English system, in the, uh, in the Anglo world, there's this long evolution of understanding of, of certain rights and privileges uh, that were by no means uh, universal, uh, <laughs> for example, you know, you go back to Magna Carta and then to the whole notion of the English common law uh, that Americans largely adopt. Uh, but there, it's, uh, it's it's sort of hit and miss, isn't it? Because uh, women didn't have the same rights as men. Women didn't get the right to vote until, right. what, 1922. And never mind, or it's, we, we, we can't overlook the fact that You had to be a property owner to vote and you had to be male and persons uh, of color,
0: particularly the slaves, were not a part of the
2: picture uh, except for uh, creating census records. for. Well, and
0: the uh, Magna Carta itself is a document uh, delimiting the rights of the baronial class.
2: Yeah. Actually, it's (laughs) the barons who limit the king's power. King John is brought to heel – more or less, they, they, the kings didn't necessarily <laughs> pay a lot of attention to Magna Carta. The curious thing about Magna Carta, it is far more uh, respected in America than it was in, yeah. the, in England, the idea that uh, if uh, if you go to Runnymede where it was signed, there's a, a big memorial that was built by America. American lawyers, <laughs> <That's> right? <laughs> uh, so, But still, it's a part of the conversation. There's this ongoing conversation of – of rights that that develops uh, over, over time, over centuries.
0: So, what would be some of those antecedents? Some of the early uh, conceptualizations of human rights, and where do you kind of see this yeah. em- emerging?
2: Well, you can. This is debated endlessly because there's so many different streams that flow into our 21st century understanding. Uh, certainly in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you find language about human dignity. If, for example, you are to love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. in the language of Scripture, uh, then that entails a certain kind of respect for the other, sure. right? And so while the language of rights is not in the Bible, the, the idea of worth human worth, is there. Uh, to, And you are to make of it what you will because you must interpret it. But if you believe that every person is created in the image of God and you take that seriously, uh, then something happens. But of course, all along the way, you have Christians reading their Bible about humans being created in the image of God and then they turn around and right. owned one another right. and abused one another. Yet, one could argue that the seeds of revision and of rethinking and of uh, adaptation of the application of that principle is is clearly present. You see it, uh, in fact, if you look at the origins of the abolition movement, its origins are Christian. you right. know, And you think of the Quakers right. and others in England who, uh, like Wilberforce, who uh, took gospel or biblical principles and applied them in a new way, a new way for many people. Because in the Bible you have slavery. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's not questioned. But side to side with the practice of slavery is this language of doing justice. That's right.
0: And, it, and you end up figuring out even yeah. in a more explicit way what that means.
2: Yeah. How is it possible this is a person created the image of God, but I can also own him? Right,
0: right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: well, I, I, you know, and so for the slave owner, it means, well, I, I treat my slave well or decently uh, like I do my dog, you know. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this person has a soul or whatever, that becomes uh, debated. But, but over time, the, uh, the, the idea develops certainly of uh, – the worth of every person and therefore dignity.
0: Cole, do you want to, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, what's the word?
1: Yeah, you're hardly letting me get a word in here. My goodness, go. I've had to go make a sandwich and come back by the time. No, I really want to echo something that Daryl said that I don't want to get lost um, because I think it is uber important. And that is, And Scott doesn't like this, I don't think, so I'll let him rail against me in a second. But the importance of the Magna Carta cannot be overstated. And for the reasons that Daryl said, number one, it was to limit the powers of the king and get society, Anglo society, closer to the law applies to every single individual person and no one is above it. And for the second reason is that it was um, planting roots to what eventually would be codified in our own documents when it says, all men are created equal. Now, clearly, it did not include women, and that's a problem, and the slavery problem that you mentioned. But it was all trying to get to where I think Daryl is bringing us today, which is the idea of dignity belonging to individual people, not individual classes of people, and I think that is extremely important. And Daryl, I, I appreciate your articulation of it because it's that's a point that I don't think can be lost in this discussion.
0: Okay, but let me—I do disagree, and I'll tell you why. And then I want Daryl to respond to us. The reason I disagree. I think the Magna Carta is important. It's the great charter. That's what it's important. No question that it's important, but it's important insofar as it is reinterpreted over and over again. Um, I mean, I think that shortly afterwards, you have the provisions of Oxford, which limit the rights of individual, uh, I mean, of the, uh, what do you call it, limit the rights of uh, peasants, Right, they don't have the right to change to go from from farm to farm. Uh, there are all kinds of limiting of rights because the Magna Carta may have gone, may have been interpreted too broadly, even in the moment. But I think much of our understanding of the Magna Carta is actually colored by the English Civil War and the English Reformation. I think. Uh, Cromwell and others who are reinterpreting specific lines out of the Magna Carta are bringing out what could be—I I think you could argue—they are seeds within the Magna Carta of of individual liberties and individual rights for all for all persons. But that's not—that's a reinterpretation of the Magna Carta, and I appreciate well, the reinterpretation. But go ahead.
1: Well, that's what I mean when I say that it was starting us on a course to where we okay. ended up. Sure, where I we can ended up. Because it's the spirit of the document was to bring all people underneath the same rule of law. That was the spirit, even though it was like shaking a Coke machine back and forth to try to get it to fall. It took iterations of it.
2: I'm not an authority on English. Uh, <laughs> civil law, so I'm going to bow but out you on, are on that on the, question. You
0: are on the English, on the English Reformation.
2: Yeah, I would say, yeah, you know, I get very interested in this topic when you come to the uh, the Reformation and specifically the period of the English Civil War, like the 1640s, because I've spent a lot of time with Milton, and I and Milton wrote a lot of uh, tracts, uh, actually book length works, call tracts uh, on uh, civil liberty, uh, church, ecclesiastical liberty, uh, and uh, he, and I can't think of many times, maybe he did, but I don't recall Milton once citing Magna Carta, but Ooh. he cites uh, all kinds of sources. He's extremely well-read. He's citing all of the literature of, of the West, you know, and particularly the Bible, and it, what's interesting is that Protestants in England in the 17th century found their source for freedom, civil liberty— In the Bible, Hmm. Uh, in the uh, King James Version of the Bible, you know, Paul says, stand fast for freedom in the book of Galatians. And while it's very possible that St. Paul was not thinking (laughs) in in civil liberty terms that we think of today, it didn't keep Protestants from appropriating that language for political purposes. And so they found in Paul the roots of civil liberty huh. in fact there's one book out that uh it's a, it's kind of a, a, I think a, a fine representation of this and it's called the pauline renaissance in england and it's how that the, the the letters of paul were used over and over again for political purposes to to argue for civil liberty the right of the individual conscience uh, before God. And so for Milton, uh, for example, uh, the very idea that the, the, uh, the state could dictate the religious convictions and the religious practices of all the citizens of the nation was just a, a horrible uh, notion to them. And they saw in Paul in particular um, the, uh, the ally against that notion of coercion, of religious coercion. Uh, so when you come to the International uh, or the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it specifically mentions, you know, that human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want. Hmm. And so there, there's a kind of a lineage here, and it's a, and it's a Western thought, by the way. And I'm not saying there aren't some notions of this in the East but this thorough working out of what it means to be a human person and what are the rights that derive from it—it's mostly a Western project, hmm. and uh, I think you see why it's it not it doesn't take hold quite so easily uh, in the Middle East or in the Far East uh, because there isn't that rich uh, dialogue and conversation, that body of conversation and knowledge. Uh, That really runs for a millennia over an arguing out and a working out of uh, what liberty means. And I think as grand as the language is in the UN Declaration, uh, and even though certain states signed it,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) uh, it it, it was never meaningful. Imagine taking that language, for example— and taking it to the Uyghur province, you know, of China today, and saying, "Well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that these Muslims have the right to free speech and belief and freedom, and you don't have the right to lock them up in your re-education camps. They 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 blow you off, right? The Wall Street Journal lost three editor, I mean, three writers, uh, journalists from China just this week. They were kicked out." Because they were uh, these uh, journalists were saying too much about what was going on in China today, right, so right. they have to go away. Right. Yeah.
0: So a signature on a form doesn't really no result in any all. change. In fact, I think I think one of the things that I appreciate about Moyne's argument is that these are uh, he quotes Ack- Ackerman: dignity is a notoriously protean notion, yeah, is yeah. ever changing, and and I'm sure that. As I think about all of the semantic features that belong to a word like dignity, it ends up being a totally different set than, for example, Cole, what you would think belonged to that conversation. Would I be right?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Um,
1: Or it may be a very – it might be a similar list, but it would be differently applied in the law perhaps between you and me. I think you would
0: let me. Let me see if I can channel my inner Cole Bennett for a second. I think you would. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, it's always uncomfortable. I'm, I'm going to watch this. It's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you would um, identify one of the major semantic classes of n- dignity would be liberty, freedom. Would would that be correct? You give me uh, dignity when you give me liberty.
1: No, I I get your question. I think that. Uh, this may be a difficult place to take this discussion, so let me tell you why, and see if you have the same questions. Okay. Because I've been th- I've been thinking about this since we've been talking, and before we started talking about this, and I don't want to derail everything, but I've been I've been really trying to think about how this all applies, and so as as bros before politicos, I think you and I could sit and talk about. Very similar things um, belonging to the dignity label or what makes um, what constitutes dignity in humans and what we believe uh, what we believe a person should have or be able to do in the name of dignity how that applies to the laws of the state though it, that's a completely different question. Because the word dignity immediately has to be interpreted, yeah. so I can imagine um, your type saying, "It is a a person receiving healthcare is number one in the in the line of dignity," and automatically we're going to be at odds because I that is an interpretation of dignity that necessarily um, harms another person, and so we're going to have to get into uh, whether. Your dignity is more important than my harm, you see. So I, I think we can both sit and, and talk about how a person um, in the name of dignity, health is certainly important, but then how does it get applied? So I, I'm not sure where to take that discussion, to be honest with you. Do you see my
2: point? Hmm. I don't have an answer to your question exactly, Cole, but I would say that... Uh, that we're in trouble today working out what you have the freedom to do and what i have the freedom to do to in part because we have lost the history of the conversation around these concepts largely and so ah. we're on our own as it were to import into those words, the little thought bubbles above our heads when we say a word like dignity Mm -hmm. or human rights, the content of that thought bubble is different for each one of us because we're generally ignorant of, say, what uh, Samuel Moyne has written about and many others have written about, that this whole conversation around human dignity uh, has a history, it's a story, it's a long, involved story, and uh, much of it has a theological uh, origin. And... um, as i was mentioning with with milton in in st paul uh, that the, the average person in America would be baffled or, or clueless if you started bringing up, "Oh, but Milton said in his uh, in his treatise of toleration, blah 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 blah." And so today, I, it seems to me these words are are extremely malleable uh, or subject to uh, meaning what you want. In the in the in say a country like China, they would say, "Oh, yeah, you have you have freedom, you have the right." to ensure a safe state, (laughs) a safe and secure state. And so most recently in that notorious case of the physician who early on detected the coronavirus, and then he was – punished by the state for disturbing the state by re- by raising uh, the alarm about this disease. And so he is the enemy of the state mm-hmm. because he's disturbing the, the tranquility of the state. So he has the freedom only uh, within this boundary of state security as the supreme value. and um, And so they can actually use this language, but then it becomes... Uh, something radically different from what I understand in the West, because I'm operating out of a a Judeo-Christian conversation that's
1: at least two millennia old.
0: Right. Right.
1: W- well, and I I think if I can just follow that for a second, Daryl, I I don't want to get too lost in semantics. I think you're right that the thought bubbles above our heads could be going in very different places, and so that's why I'm trying at all times to stay grounded, which is hard for me whenever we start talking about concepts like this, because ultimately I would say you only have the right to your version of dignity insofar as it does not disturb my right to, say, property or life, liberty or property or and so then we start we're back to the definition of a right and I for me it seems like the definition of rights should come before the definition of dignity do you, do you follow me there and if I'm wrong tell me tell me what you think um
2: I think you're putting the cart before the horse yeah uh, okay <laughs> but I still I do agree that this grand talk this language even like out of the uh, UN Declaration doesn't help us very much in settling very particular cases. Uh, I'm okay. reminded of something. Uh, I, I had a civics class when I was in uh, junior high back then. It was so long ago they didn't have middle schools. They had junior high and high school. <clears throat> and Mr. Crawl, Ralph Crawl, uh taught civics. And I love that civics course. And uh, he was highly opinionated himself, but he still introduced us to a lot of uh, uh, U.S. history and, and, and the whole notion of civics and uh, he would say often uh your freedom ends where my nose begins (laughs) have you ever heard that oh yes and and it really communicated something to this uh you know kid who was 13 years old or whatever uh and uh but that was a naive kind of say i mean it's a great cliche right uh, but in fact, the state does have certain controls over my body, you know, uh, they can uh, dictate certain, uh, you know, prohibitions on ingesting certain sub- substances, you know, and uh, they, and, and I'm glad of that, you know, they can decide that the meat that I eat uh, goes through USDA approval, uh, approval <laughs> uh, for my, for my safety. But I might say, well, I don't, I don't want, you know, fluoride in my water, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And that, those debates have been uh, going on for, forever. Uh, it doesn't quite se- – you can't quite settle it by saying uh, your freedom ends where my nose begins. Uh, society has interest in the individuals. We live in a highly individualistic society. But even that notion of, of radical individualism has a history. It comes from somewhere. And it's never been absolute in any society I know of. Uh, it may be the goal, and it may be preferred to uh, excessive control, but it, there's this constant negotiation over where your nose begins.
1: <laughs> yes, and I, and I I agree with all that. Of course, I I think what I'm saying is I'm unclear. Um, I'm unclear where that the, that conversation how it's linked so much to dignity. Although I do take your point that these are grand conversations, not, yeah. not ones that are to be toward the minutia. And so yeah. in that way, it makes sense. I, I, I can't see a group of people forming a new country saying, let's make sure that whatever constitution we put down preserves people's dignity more than I can see them saying, let's make sure it preserves their rights. That's why yeah. it's the cart before the horse, I'm not sure. Maybe they're walking parallel. Well, let me say, uh, come back to that point. Here's why I think
2: it's prior uh, and foundational okay. Uh, If I do not think you are a human person, Hmm. if I think you are an object Hmm. or a thing, and I start with that notion that you don't have human dignity, that you are something to be used. And you could go back to Immanuel Kant. Many people believe that Immanuel Kant, uh, in his categorical imperative, really is stating this, that you never treat a person as a means but as an end Uh, in themselves, that they, they are such worth that or value or price, there is no price higher than the human person. If you don't have that idea, then your rights are going to be radically constrained because what if I see you as less than a human person?
0: As property, as as
2: property, for example, yes, and then then we can talk about rights all day long. Uh But you know, I actually think uh, dogs and cats should have some rights Mm. in the sense that they shouldn't be abused or mistreated. Right? Uh, They shouldn't be tortured. Uh, I'd be I'm happy to have laws that that could punish you for starving a horse to Uh death. Uh All right. but the the rights of my animals, and that and that may change over time because there's quite a uh, human rights and uh, animal rights movement, that uh, we are we do have already today certain limited notions of uh, animal rights, but we don't see them as human persons, at least not yet. And so look at how the rights then derive are mm-hmm. derivative of the notion of dignity. Mm-hmm. The dignity for yeah, me is prior
1: to. Yeah, that, now that absolutely makes sense from a definitional standpoint of to whom will our documents apply. Then dignity absolutely comes first. And I, I see that. And I would say definitionally to animals or non-humans and also to clumps of cells, which is exactly what Roe v. Wade did is to say, uh, that there's no person to have rights until the third trimester. Yeah. Before that is not a person with any, dignity to have
0: rights i guess in this in this definition then of dignity we're actually talking about something that is aretaic or is a, a kind of virtue that drives uh definitions of policy or definitions of uh, 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 deontological definitions wouldn't you say cole
1: i think you might ought to explain that for the listeners just to make sure they understand
0: well um in other words, we're interpreting a concept of dignity and, and then kind of applying it in terms of policy or or a, a rulemaking or principle making that we have that rights become kind of a manifestation of the this conceptual operationalized conception of virtue of of dignity as a virtue. Yes. Yes. Um, OK, so we convinced you. We Daryl convinced you
1: <laughs> Daryl convinced me of the necessity of defining to whom your policies apply on a basis of dignity.
0: I still, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, I'm kind of trying to corner you a little bit, Cole. I know. So, Well, let me, let me do it.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: What, what as, as, as we talk about this idea of dignity, I, I mean, I really, I really want to understand how that conversation uh, strikes you because I, I want to understand um, how you interpret dignity, the concept of human rights, into a policy of libertarianism. That's kind of where I'm trying to go. I'm guessing it probably happens, but I don't understand how. I, I, I tried.
1: Okay. I think I... Let me start with a negative example. Okay. And this, was, this has been on my mind since I knew that this podcast was coming. And it strikes me that listeners and or Daryl may think that you and I, you know, send emails back and forth all the time thinking, make sure we mention this on the podcast episode. But we don't. Right. I, I once heard um, a very interesting podcast where the the guest was a... I believe was a sociologist or a social work professional. And I might have mentioned this before on this podcast, but her thesis was that charity is bad. Not that it's neutral, and not that it's not enough, but that it is inherently bad. And the podcast host was pressing her to to say why that was, thinking that she would say, because it will never be enough. But she said, charity causes people to doff their cap.
0: Yeah, you have mentioned this before. I remember that phrase. Yeah. Go
1: ahead. Yes. And it sticks in my craw like so many pine cones because her thesis is it removes the dignity of a person to accept charity and removing dignity is off the table. And it never asks the question, is it dignified to take my property away from me by penalty of jail? That is not a question that's allowed to be asked. And so many leftist policies, I believe, use the language of dignity in order to make their case to take away property that it is used in ways that I find highly offensive. So as a libertarian, I want to say, dignity is important to me as a person, and as a Christian, I'm interested in dignity. I don't think it is an appropriate thing to bring in to talk about making law, except in the way Daryl mentioned a moment ago to answer the question, to whom do these laws apply? And perhaps a, f- a few other very fundamental ways, but not very many. Interesting. I th- thank
0: you. I, I mean, I uh, as I said, I, I'm I was trying to kind of get you into the corner to tell me what you think, and and I think you did that. That's helpful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think a belief in human dignity easily and automatically answers the question about this policy versus that policy. Yeah. I right. think you've got to back up a bit and get more context for that. Uh, about where, uh, h- how do we resolve this? I'm reading, for example, right now uh, that there's a rethinking about uh, the what to do with the seriously mental ill. Uh, uh, the government passed laws some decades ago that basically emptied. Uh, Uh, beds, hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of beds Mm -hmm. in hospitals that were devoted to seriously mentally ill went away because the federal government rewrote national policy so that it disincentivized the states to run state mental hospitals. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like a great and virtuous move because the argument was uh, now we have medicines and with people on the right medicines, we can do in-home care or in blah, blah, blah. You can you, you know the, the arguments. And in fact, that was true for certain people. Right. But it also, as we now know, has created this national crisis of, of homelessness, unlike anything that we had, say, 50 years ago. Uh, and there are people who need care who don't have care. And so now you have this classic conflict between. But we've got, because of human dignity, we allow this seriously, mentally ill, schizophrenic, who may be at at risk of his own self-harm and the harm of others, but he is a human person and he has the right to live under that bridge in Abilene or Austin or wherever. And the other side is, no, because he's a human person, he needs care and the state needs to provide care for him. I just don't know how I can take my deep belief in human dignity and get to the right policy answer on how to take care of the seriously mentally ill. If you've got the answer, I'm, I'm uh, No, 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 I don't. Here. And in fact,
0: uh, I think I think you're resonating with uh, it. We, we had that Beverly and I had this conversation yesterday. We have a family member who is in this position. And what he does is he trespasses so that he uh, is arrested and taken to jail because he knows he's safe. And, have a, and he a gets meal out. A bed. That's yeah. right. He gets out. Uh, he tries to go on his own, and he will literally break the law merely by trespassing to get another thirty days. Yeah. And it's wh- so. So, where is that? Where is the dignity there? I mean, <laughs> set aside the the absurdity yeah. of the of the law. What, yeah, we really we really are um, in a different place if we assume that. There is a policy that equals dignity. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think that's a, a dangerous spot. The other thing I will say, Cole, and this is a criticism of everybody, not of just that person that you're referencing. Um, I'm always unhappy with someone who reaches into the grab bag of virtues as a shortcut right. to a deeper and more complex argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I feel like I hear that on folks that that agree with me on policy. I feel like I hear that with people who disagree with me on policy. I hear that frequently where I feel like folks go reach in and um and reach for a shortcut, um that, um or reach for a virtue as a shortcut. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I felt this way um, last summer with the uh, kerfuffle of. Um, individuals, I don't even know if that's an appropriate word here, but individuals who are seeking asylum uh, and crossing over the, the United States border from Mexico. Many of these people were from Honduras and were seeking asylum in the United States. And there was a, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the people I agreed with that these were people looking for asylum, they should have asylum, were actually shortcutting the argument by reaching into a grab bag of virtues and misapplying them. And and I, I don't think that is, A, I don't think that's persuasive. Uh, and b i think it's damaging to our ability to understand what those virtues are i th- i feel like i sound like an old man when i talk that way
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i i'm i track with you it is it is a lazy shortcut and it's done by everyone <laughs> <laughs> present company accepted
0: absolutely yeah
1: absolutely uh, i'm i'm
2: uh wary of people who make arguments like all forms of charity are equal, for example. As you were describing this scenario mm-hmm. of how that you're uh, removing the dignity of a person by giving them charity, you're, you're doffing your hat to them. I thought of Jesus' parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. So you have this man bleeding and dying on the roadside who's utterly helpless in his state. Uh, do you think he felt demeaned because someone bound up his wounds and... Uh, got him food at the local inn, or was he, was his dignity being honored or being trampled in that case? Right. It's pretty yeah. obvious to me his dignity was not being trampled at all. Uh, he was being given life. Last night in the evening news, there was a story about a, a, a charity event uh, at the Civic Center where they were raising money to fund um, a program that helps uh, people in crisis in their families uh, due to domestic violence. So think about this. You're giving money to this charity to mm-hmm. help women in particular who are at risk of being harmed and their children being harmed. Uh, in what sense, if someone gives to that charity, are they doffing their hats? Uh, I mean, it's possible there is that form of charity that's a, a sort of a noblesse oblige and it's mm-hmm. a, it's, a, 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 it's just a veiled you attempt to be, make you yourself feel good about yourself yeah. because you you have power and they don't. But to suggest that all forms of help in the world are is somehow another demeaning is, is beyond stupid, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. We need subtlety here. We need distinctions.
0: Uh, we need discernment uh, that not all actions are, are equal. <laughs> well, and one of the things, Daryl, that I think is fascinating about the whole thesis of the conversation we're having is that... I think we're kind of reject, or it sounds like you're rejecting a kind of positivist understanding of what a term means or a concept means, and embracing that it is an evolving. We evolve in our understanding of what human rights is. Maybe we evolve very recently. We evolve in our understanding of what dignity is. That these are not um, words that mean something just because there is a Webster's dictionary definition of what they are, but they mean something because of the way we understand them in a collective, constructive sense. You
2: know, in fact, let me give you an example of it, I think, uh, batting a good example. I think American foreign policy has been really misguided in recent uh, generations because we have naively thought – uh, that we could go into a country that did not have human rights as we understand them in the West right. and we could uh, topple a government or help a new government take over and they could write a constitution that was a mirror of our own. And presto, mm-hmm. you would have uh, a liberal de- democratic society like we have. And guess what? It didn't work very well. If you go to China right now and Hong Kong, you see something fen- uh, very interesting going on because in Hong Kong – and this is one a great paradox and even an irony – that because Hong Kong was a colony for so many generations but a British colony mm-hmm. that developed notions of human rights in the British tradition mm. – Guess what? <laughs> the, these young people in Hong Kong are loath to give up right. an understanding of human rights that they inherited from their British, uh, you know, colonial li- uh, overseers. And uh, I'm not all for colonialism at all, but I do think here's a case where that period of co- colonization led them to an understanding of liberty. That, they, that is fundamentally different from what's coming out of Beijing. Mm. And so here you have something really difficult because you've got the rock in the hard place. Um, right. Or, or maybe it's uh, an irresistible force and an immovable object. But the point is these two systems are incommensurable. Right. But you can actually go to, the, to a Chinese constitution and find noble language here much like what we've been describing, you know, in the Universal Declaration out of the UN. But it means nothing in the Beijing context, and it means everything in the Hong Kong context. I do think there's this large question that we all have to wrestle with, and that is if we remove the grounding out of which our notion of human rights comes from and human dignity, is it going to be possible to maintain any kind of serious um, commitment to human rights, or does it simply become cover, you know, semantic cover to do what we want to do anyway? Right. And I think many years ago, a, a Quaker theologian named Elton Trueblood uh, wrote a book called, or at least he developed the concept, it may not be the book title, of what he called the Cut Flower Generation. And he said, the thing about a cut flower is once it's cut from its roots, you can put it in the vase and you will have beautiful flowers for a while. But the roots have been removed and the flower fades. He argued as a Christian philosopher, he was a philosopher, uh, that much of what we enjoy in the West in terms of our notion of human freedom and dignity and so forth is rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's that Judeo-Christian tradition that feeds and sustains our notion of liberty, et cetera. And his question was for us, if you cut yourself off from those roots, so you keep the language of freedom and justice, but you cease to have it grounded in something, will it survive beyond your own generation or will we be the cut flower generation? To me, that's a haunting question, Mm -hmm. and I don't know the answer to it. I I may not live long enough to see it, because I think we are still feeding off of, benefiting from the the deep uh, sustenance that comes, the rich sustenance that comes from this Judeo-Christian tradition. It's still a part of our memory, our cultural memory. It still uh, feeds us in many ways, but I'm not sure it will continue to do so.
0: So do you think that that means that then there is a role for— uh, Christianity and or Christian institutions to play in preserving that connection to the – and what would that look like? Yeah,
2: Well, I would make something of a distinction between the ideas – and the institution although those obviously are symbiotic to uh-huh. some way or in their are mutual uh, I don't I'm not talking about political power like what we need is uh, to have something like the, the House of Lords in London where the, <laughs> the bishops of the church are actually political actors as right. well I, I'm not saying that at all but to me ideas have consequences ideas change things Marxism was not originally an institution, Mm -hmm. but it was a set of ideas. And it had a revolutionary effect on the world, right? And so to me, just as Marxism is an idea, and it ferments and percolates uh, in a culture, and then it produces its own fruit, the same thing is true of Jewish and Christian understandings of human dignity and human worth. And so I'm not so much committed to saying how Uh, Those ideas are uh, sustained. I think they are sustained through institutions, Mm. but they're also – they should be in the air. (laughs) They should be in the water. Uh, They should be – it should be a a, a fair thing to do in a history class to tell the story of uh, how – The pilgrims came to, you know, uh, New England or whatever, uh, not sanitize it. You know, there's a lot of abuse and error because that's true with all human beings who are flawed. I'm showing my own Christian theology here that Mm -hmm. uh, every person, every expression, every institutional expression, of, uh, of an idea is flawed because it's composed of flawed people but that doesn't mean that there aren't ideas there worth preserving and keeping and transmitting and sharing and debating you know and mm-hmm. uh, not just paying homage to them like it's a dogma but that they should be uh, there they should be living ideas that continue to animate and shape the culture we need a culture of ideas and i think those that kind of culture is at risk today especially in an age of uh, Uh, Social media, where and Mm soundbites, where there's not deep reflection on the roots of our own tradition. That is something to think about, Daryl. Well, let's think about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I will. I will add that what I'm going to take from that and think about really hard, Daryl, is your. I believe I heard a necessary connection in your mind between the ideas of freedom and justice, and. Christianity. And so many of the people I know or know of or read or see on Twitter or whatever who are free market libertarians, so many of them are not interested in Christianity or religion. And I realize that you're saying they might be interested in it and not know its roots, but its roots are those. And I'm trying to decide how much of that I agree with, whether whether the root of freedom is Christianity, the way I think of freedom. Maybe I need to rethink how I think of freedom. Yeah.
0: But here's what I like about the thesis. You know, Cole, you and I have, I think we've made the argument, I think we've repeated the argument several times that, the, <laughs> that maybe Christianity is uh, not good at or maybe inappropriate for Christianity to influence or to try and influence policy through coercion but that doesn't mean that we don't have a rhetorical purpose in the public square. I think both of you, mm-hmm. both you and I believe that we have some rhetorical purpose in the public square. I think there is something at stake in treating my neighbor with dignity. <laughs> I, I think, I think Darryl, you're you're hitting on something that illustrates the importance of not just Christian ideas, but Christian action, Christian activity. Christian interaction. That I, I think I've made this point before, Cole. I uh, it's it's uh, anachronistic and uh, and also um, unrealistic to imagine that slavery was was uh, uh, overcome by Wilberforce or mm-hmm. by any one individual. It's uh, the ideas are important. But the ways in which they are manifest in the normal everyday lives of other people, of other people who take those take, take that idea seriously and treat their neighbor with kindness, with empathy, with, uh, with dignity, that becomes, I think, the, the power of tra- uh, transformational power in the public square. I don't think it's because we got enough people to, to shift a law uh, or to agree to pull a lever in a certain direction. I think it has to do with, um, I mean, Daryl, you mentioned social media. I think it comes down to treating my neighbor on social media with dignity. Uh, There's so much at stake. If what you're saying is true, if there is this, uh, if there is soil in which this all enriches the flower, that's the place we have to operate.
2: Yeah. And let me say something else about uh, all your secular friends who uh, want to own ideas of human freedom and dignity that don't want to go back to the Bible and don't want to go to Sunday school to get it. That's fine. Uh, the, we haven't even introduced the whole notion of natural law. You right. need you need to have a whole session on this, which has also been richly developed primarily through the Catholic tradition, but the idea that there are certain inalienable or inalienable uh, rights, uh, that's really an expression of what's called natural law. And so people who believe in natural law believe that these rights do derive from God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, blah, blah, blah. But uh, you could have an atheist who recognizes the virtue of having some autonomy in your life, Mm -hmm. the the way to express yourself in a free way. Uh, You don't have to be religious to prefer that. Think of all the people in East Germany who kept absconding to the West, and they weren't saying, well, I read my Bible today, and it made me want to cross (laughs) the boundary. But before I read my Bible, I hadn't even thought about it. No, there's something innate in the human person that seeks Freedom of expression, right? Now I believe that the ideas of the Judeo-Christian tradition feed it, aid it, and abet it, right. and, and and encourage it in certain ways. But I would say it's in the human person; it's built in.
0: Interesting,
2: you know. Uh, was it Rousseau who said, "A man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains," you mm-hmm. know? Uh, so. Uh, you may have been born in chains, but there's something in you that longs for truth and dignity. Again, coming back to China because of the of the most recent uh, coronavirus, you have all these people in China who are furious. They're they're Chinese, and they're they're not in Hong Kong now, but they are furious with their government because they have concealed the truth about the disease and how early it started, and what could have been done early on that was not done. There was obfuscation and deceit and lying. About the disease in the early days, that probably compounded the seriousness of it. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of Chinese who are not Christians (laughs) and aren't reading their Bibles, but they feel something, they feel that they've been cheated and and misused by their own government because within them, as a a human being, they, they think truth is better than deceit.